I'm Jenny Galuzzo, co-founder of The Second Shift. Welcome to our podcast where we talk all things women, work, and well-being, how they intersect, our competing forces, and how to create and maintain personal and professional alignment in your life. Let's do this. It's back to school September at the second shift, and we have Jana Rich, who is the founder and CEO of Rich Talent Group, and she will be teaching us how to get on a board and why it's important for women to hold board seats. This is something that comes up in conversation a lot within professional women's circles, what are the best types of roles? What's the difference between a public company board, a non-for-profit board, a private company board? Why is it important to take those roles? How much of a time commitment is it? Is the prestige worth the amount of time commitment, headache, hassle? Is it fear that are holding women back from taking those roles? Is it something that is on principle where women need to go to further their career and aspirations. Well, Jana Rich is the person we need to talk to because she has been a San Francisco-based executive recruiter for like 30 years. She has founded her own firm, the Rich Talent Group. She works with early stage venture-backed companies, Fortune 500 companies, every tech company, you name it, works with her. She deeply believes that diverse teams are the best and the strongest. And as we sit now, 44% of Fortune 500 companies have women on their boards and continues to grow. And we see a lot of progress happening. So that then enters the conversation why women are like, okay, well, there's so much out there about why women need to take board seats. But then how do you go about doing that? What does that actually mean? How do you get those jobs? How do people know about you? How does it work? So. Jana is going to walk us through the nitty gritty, the reality of how long it actually takes, who they're looking for, why they're looking for those women, when you should be thinking about it, what the time commitment really looks like, and and how important it is. So here we go. We're going back to school. Thank you so much, Jana Rich. And I hope that soon it won't be 44% of women on those board seats. It will be 50. And with Jana's help, we'll get there. The number one thing I want to start off with is you have such a long and storied career as a recruiter, specifically somebody who's focused on diversity and diverse talent. And you've placed women in lots of board seats over your career Why is it so important that women take a bigger percentage of board seats, in your opinion? Why are we focused on this as an industry and also as a gender and also in corporate America? Well, it's a great question. And there's many reasons why, but to just try to simplify it a bit. First of all, I'd say, what is the role of a board member? Because I think that's actually important context in terms of why would it be important for women to be on boards? When you think about it and you distill it down, there's really two primary roles of a board member. One is to help a company on its strategy. So not its day-to-day operations, but its strategy and how that's going to change and evolve over the future and over a lot of different factors that are facing a company. And the second, interesting enough, is to evaluate the performance of the CEO, choose a new CEO if and when that is relevant for the company, 
And in either one of those cases, it's an incredibly important role for a company. So you think about what we've all just been through with the pandemic and with all the challenges that none of us would ever have anticipated facing in our professional lives, whether that was everything going digital, whether that was remote work or hybrid work or any of the economic uncertainties that we're all faced with. And so companies and their boards were challenged with a whole set of new issues and challenges. And why is it important for women? And I'd say women and people of color, both, to be honest, but I know we're focusing on women today. Whenever you think about how are the best decisions made, especially in times of crisis, that's because a diverse set of backgrounds and experiences around that table And in particular, when you think about women, they are particularly good, honestly, in times of crisis. They tend to weigh multiple sides of a challenge and opportunity before making a decision. And much of the research cites that boards that have women and also people of color make better decisions in the end. The other thing I'll just say is when you think about boards choosing the next CEOs, the next generation of CEOs, You want the people in those decision-making chairs to have access to a more diverse group of candidates. So again, having women, people of color, even LGBTQ plus folks helping to make those choices about the next CEOs is incredibly important. Were you always in the game of, I know you've been a recruiter for a lot of years, but then when you went out on your own, was placing women in board seats or people of diversity in board seats, was that a focus that you came to early on? It was. So when I think about I've been doing executive recruitment now for 27 years. And since the day I started doing that back in 1996, now granted at the time I was part of much larger firms, but I had a real passion around recruiting more women, more people of color, more LGBTQ plus folks to both leadership teams and boards. And when I stepped off the large platforms in 2014 to launch Rich Talent Group, we said then, and we still say today, There's only two things you really need to know about us in terms of our expertise, our mission, our passion, and that's digital and diversity. So digital obviously being our industry focus and even functional focus, if you will. And yes, since day one, we've said we're all about trying to advocate for and find more great diverse leaders. The other just interesting point is we're a team of 20. Every single one of us identifies either a woman and or a person of color and or LGBTQ+. So we're uniquely members of these communities and deeply passionate about the mission. I love that. When we started, Gina, you know, my partner, Gina, when we started the second shift, it was similarly focused in the sense we wanted to give women opportunities to continue in their career paths, seeing that from the end of that, it's when women are in power, they make decisions that then positively impact everybody else down the chain and the next generations. So how do you keep them floating, moving, going in their careers so that they can rise up into positions of leadership, get board seats? And that is why we are here today talking to you because it's so important for women to step into leadership roles. And I think over the years, it's been a little bit of a struggle to convince some of the women we talk to that they have the qualifications, that it's not scary, that it's really important, and that it's really beneficial for their careers, that this is, it's prestigious. It's all of those are true. And the other thing I would just add to it is the number of times we have heard, I don't have the time to, 
at a board seat. And by the way, I understand that in many cases, that's a true statement. I think in some cases, it's a little bit of a mask for some of the things you just said, meaning fear, uncertainty, a little less comfortable. So I always say to people, maybe don't lead with, I'm sorry, I don't have time. <laughs> lead with what would that mean, right? What amount of time commitment would be involved? What is the role you would ask me to do as opposed to an instant no, I don't have time for it. I think women are also more predisposed to feel comfortable taking roles that are in leadership in non-for-profit boards. It's something where oftentimes women volunteer, they feel really passionate about things, they're purposeful in the organizations they get involved with. And so they feel really comfortable taking bigger roles and leadership in that type of board. But I think about this even for myself where I'm like, well, I don't really know what I do that would make me interesting or qualified to sit on a board. So what are the types of roles or backgrounds that you've seen placed or placed or that people want right now for those roles? So we don't set incorrect expectations. No, it's a great point. And I think there are several trend lines that are really positive for people who I'll say would be in this context, first time public company board members. So I'll just use that as a frame for a second. In the past, if you look back historically, the vast majority of board seats went to either sitting or recently retired CEOs, chief executive officers, and current or recently retired chief financial officers. And just to be clear, plenty of those folks still join boards today. But the parameters around what boards are looking for have opened up pretty dramatically. So for example, if you are a president, a COO, a divisional head, someone who's running a piece of a PL company, all very interesting to boards. If you have strong, I'll just call it digital DNA, meaning you either came up through digitally native companies or you helped a non-digitally native company build their digital expertise. You have global expertise. You have expertise scaling an organization. A lot of companies really want to understand how do we grow from what we currently are to two or three X our size. And many people have that experience, even though it may not be the highest titles necessarily, but the experience is very relevant. And you look at companies today, if you have kind of, I'll call it modern experience in things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, these things are incredibly interesting. The other thing I'll say, which I think is very interesting, is many of the board members that we're recruiting are first-time board members for public companies. They're also typically 20 years younger than the next youngest board member. So the good news is under this lens of, I want to diversify my board, I want to look at lots of different types of talent, there are a lot of ways in which parameters are opened up for a wide variety of people that might not think they're qualified, but in fact, the boards are very interested in their backgrounds. I love that. That is so positive and such a, a great lens to look at it because you do, you read a lot of headlines, right? There's so much in the news about the quotas and we're moving in the right direction, but really there are a limited number of seats and they don't change over that quickly. So how much of the headline matches where we are in terms of velocity or even capacity to bring on new people? How many seats are really being filled? It's a great question. I think you've identified something important. Typically in the U.S., we don't have term limits on board seats. So you're right. An individual joins that board. And if they're doing well and all is great, they can be on that board for a decade or even longer. So you're right. Sometimes those positions don't open that frequently average board 
probably somewhere in the range of nine to 11 board members. It can shift, but for public company boards, that's about right. It's always an odd number just in terms of decision-making power. So all of that, yes, is challenging. But what's interesting is looking at what's happening when board seats do open. And overwhelmingly over the last couple of years, at least through our practice, and I wouldn't say necessarily that's true for all recruiters, but with, I think it's one exception. So let's call it 99% of those who recruited to boards have added diversity either in that they're women or they're people of color. So there's been a massive shift in new board openings. The other, I think, interesting data point is several of the boards that we're working with have actually created new board roles. So they've actually said, we're going to expand the number of seats on our board in order to add more diversity versus waiting for somebody to step off the board or retire or whatever the right terminology there might be. And oftentimes when they're adding one board seat, they'll add two. And why I think that's really interesting is they're saying we don't want to just do tokenism. We actually don't want to bring on just one person into a room where they're the only person adding diversity. We want to really find ideally a cohort so you feel that there's other voices around that table. You're not the only one being asked to represent diversity. Isn't it like the number's three? If there's three, it stops being tokenism and it just starts being empowering for whatever group that is the the marginalized group. You know, the other thing I'll just say will be interesting over the course of time. We talk about, understandably, one, two, three women on a board today. Won't it be interesting And what we talk about is a board that is the board we would expect is 50-50, male and female. I mean, unfortunately, today that's very few boards, but I would love to see a day in which that's the new standard. Yeah. Well, I also think that will take time because when you think about pipeline of talent, if you're looking at people from very specific functions, it has to match the number of people who are in those specific functions. So we need more women in those functions, which just takes time for you know generations to shift. Now we've talked about public company boards a little bit. What about private company boards? It's a different animal a little bit, right? It winds up being investors, but also CEOs of private companies like to keep it very friendly. Yeah, there's obviously all different types of boards, but I know before you mentioned not-for-profits, I'll touch upon that briefly, and then I'll talk about private company boards because you're right, they're all different in terms of what are they looking for, what are the expectations, and what does it actually lead to? So first I'll talk just around about not-for-profit boards. They are great for some reasons and not for others. So I'll explain. Doing 20 plus years now of board recruitment, it is incredibly rare that a company that I'm seeking a board member for says that not-for-profit board experience is a reason I would choose them, or it's a qualification that matters to me. That's extremely rare. And the reason I'm trying to clarify that is I do think some women misinterpret that if I go on this not-for-profit board, I'm going to be a stronger candidate for whether it's a big private company board or a public company board, not necessarily. That's very good information. However, and this is the important, I think, um, nuance to it. So it's not that it's necessarily a door opener, but what it is, which I think is very important, it's understanding how boards work. It's understanding how to be a good board member, meaning we call it being at the right altitude, meaning you're, again, helping on company strategy. You're not involved in day-to-day operations and learning what that's like is a new skill set, oftentimes for first-time board members. And when you come back to the power of network, think about what the not-for-profit board is that you're serving on. 
Look at who the other board members are. Make sure they're people that you respect and admire and think you can learn something from them about board service. Because to me, again, it's about filling your cup so that you're a knowledgeable board member versus it's a stepping stone to another board. It's a nuance that's important, I think. Also, not all not-for-profit boards are created equal. So with no disrespect to this, by the way, but you're serving on your local school board versus you're in a pretty high profile national not-for-profit that has an incredibly profound group of other board members, right? Those two things are dramatically different. So think about, again, what you're solving for and what you're hoping to get out of it. Pause. In terms of private company boards, you made, I think, a very important point. Those are typically heavily investors, and they obviously have a financial stake in the company on whose board they serve. And a company is typically going through what could be about a, call it, two-year transition, whereby they might be getting ready potentially to do an IPO, or they're just growing and scaling, and they want to provide different perspectives on that board. I think as a candidate, you have to think about, do I want to sit around a board that's a bunch of investors? About for, for several candidates, that can be very compelling. That is an interesting group of people to be on their network and to learn from. They, by the way, will have a whole bunch of other boards that they're looking to fill slots for. So there's something good about it. On the flip side, there are probably very few operators around that board who have the same point of view that you would have. And sometimes people can feel a little frustrated that they have difficulty influencing investors who are very strong financial stake in the company. And they're more happy as it's a little farther along when they might be the second or third operating person added to the board and it's starting to mature. It's starting to be something that's more diverse. And now I just mean diverse in terms of the people's work experience and the point of view that they're bringing to that equation. The other thing I would just note about private company boards is they can be incredibly time consuming. If you really are one of the first or the the first operating person on the board, they may not necessarily understand yet that in the real world, you come to four board meetings a year, you do committee work in between, but not you're kind of on call anytime they need you. Think about it, right? Their VC investors are on call anytime they need them. So I just say to people, if you're going on a private company board, it's really critical that you talk about time commitment, you talk about role, you talk about what you can and can't do to make sure there's alignment around expectations. Fantastic. Thank you so much for breaking all that down. Okay, so step one, you are a person who's like, this is my goal. I am going to go get on a board. I'm ready. I have the relevant expertise, experience that they're looking for. What is step one? Yeah, and I would even say, For some people who might be getting close to a point in their career where they won't be in an operating role anymore and they want to serve on boards, back up from there. My point is, do a board before you retire. Do a board before you step out of your operating role. And this is where it comes back to a lot of women say, I don't have time. If your goal and objective is potentially to say three years from now or five years from now, I'm going to have a portfolio of boards. That's ideally what I'd like to do you really want to start early because you're going to be even more credible for that first board when you're in an operating role that's relevant to the company. So that's one about when to start. The second, I think people do way too late in the process. Engage your CEO and maybe even your own board if you've had some exposure to them. So say to your CEO, or if you know some of your board members, I'm very interested in serving on a board. So why is that important? A, you want to make sure you've got your CEO's support because you don't want to find out 
at the ninth hour that actually he or she isn't really keen on you serving on a board. You want to make sure you understand that early. They can also be an incredible conduit for you. They often get calls about boards themselves, and it would be great for them to know these are the kinds of boards you're interested in. They can also help mentor you and develop you. Exact same thing with your own board members, right? So many board positions will go to folks that are known to other board members. So building that network first, I'll call it at home, meaning the folks that you know well is incredibly important. If there are people out there like you, so let's just pretend hypothetically you're a female CMO in the tech industry. I'm just making that up. Who are the other female CMOs in the tech industry who are serving on board? So they might be a step ahead of you letting them know of your interest in boards because they often really don't have capacity. Oftentimes you can only take one board. They'll be the ones that sort of rain down opportunities on you because you are similar to them in terms of background and industry and that sort of thing. The last thing I'd say is recruiters. So, and again, I'm not talking today only about public company boards, but it's interesting that approximately 70%, so 70% 70 of public company board roles go through recruiters. So not all of them by any means, but a pretty significant number. And every recruiter works with different companies, different industries, sometimes different geographies, although that's less relevant in the boardroom. So try to make sure over the course of time, you meet three or four key board recruiters at different firms. That's the way you're going to cast your net more broadly so that you see a different range of opportunities. And when you're working with recruiters, try to be as specific as you can. A number of people will say to me, I'll take a board, any board, just let me know when there's a board role. You've got to create hooks for people. So in general, are there two or three industries you're interested in? Are you only open to boards on the West Coast? Just as an example, making sure the person's got some parameters. Otherwise, truthfully, it's hard for them to call you up in their memory. It's like they need to know that there's a few things like you flag in the page of a book in some way, shape or form so that they'll know to turn back to that chapter. That is such good advice. What is something someone should not do? Where have you seen things go off the rails or just wrong, where they stumbled over something that could have been avoided? It's a great question. And there's several things, truthfully. But I think maybe there's two things I'd say that are really fundamental that will dovetail back into what not to do. So one is understanding what boards need today and understanding where your skill set's relevant. And a board search is typically very specific. I don't know that people always understand this. So pause for just a second, because I think this is important. When recruiting is happening for operating roles in companies, you cannot legally say, I want a Black female for this role. You can't do that. You can say, I want to make sure the slate of candidates is incredibly diverse. You can say two out of you know, five of the candidates need to add diversity. That's about, again, the candidate pool, but you cannot say, I want to hire a Black woman. Okay, that's important because boards are completely different. They are not governed by those rules. So a board search could be as specific as it's a Black female who's 45 years old, who's a sitting CFO in a tech company on the West Coast. It could be all those things. And so the reason I highlight those two things is the number one thing I think board candidates do that can grate on the nerves is they don't understand what the board's looking for and they don't understand if they actually are or are not a strong candidate and they become impatient. 
So they keep sort of pinging you or they get annoyed when they see company X just added a board member and they weren't called on it. And then you say, but did you notice that this person has actually no similarities to you in terms of background, function, industry, et cetera? So it's sort of having a little bit more wisdom as to how board search is done and therefore understanding if they are or are not qualified. Sounds like it's also learning how to play the long game, that this Absolutely. is a long game, that you have to have patience, that this isn't something that happens right away. Going back to what we were saying before about the turnaround is really slow. The process is really slow. You know, Just because you have your board bio together and you've talked to two people doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. It's a great point because when you think about executive recruitment for operating roles, on average, that's call it four to five months for the duration of that search. A board search oftentimes is almost twice that long. Now, I will say there's a caveat. During the pandemic, board searches have gone much more quickly because people haven't had to go in person to interview. Because think about it, right? If there's three or four board members involved, they're scattered all across the country. Some may even be outside the US. And if you had to go in person to meet each one of them, it takes quite a bit longer. So that's one thing. The other is, Typically, there's not the same sense of urgency. It's not like I have to fill this board role in the next 30 days. It's much more important to them to take their time because they're thinking, this person's likely to be on my board for a decade plus. So I'm going to meet them two or three times. I'm going to make sure I have dinner with them and their significant other. Like This is a big decision I'm making. So yes, for many, many reasons, the process takes time. And you're absolutely right. The patience piece is really critical. You're like dating each other. Yes. <laughs> you you are. It's that it's the process of if this is going to be a long-term relationship, knowing on both sides what to watch out for. So from the flip side, if you are a candidate and you are being courted in this process, what is a red flag or something to look out for where you're like, mm, I'm not positive this is for me? I'll start with maybe something that's obvious and yet I feel like it gets missed sometimes. So for candidates who are very happy in their current operating roles, which is probably the majority of people that we talk to for board roles, their instant response to any outreach from a recruiter is they just don't return the call or the email or whatever the communication is because they're just not even thinking about, oh, wait a minute, they're talking about a board role. They're not asking me to leave my company and go elsewhere. So taking just a half a beat of a pause to say, you may not engage with a recruiter if they're trying to recruit you out of your company, but what is it actually that they're talking to you about? So great. So you've ascertained that. Great. So recruiter X is calling me about a board search. What are the common mistakes that might happen there? So again, I would say it's really making sure you understand exactly what that board is looking for, what the expectations are, what their timing is, because sometimes contrary to what we just talked about, sometimes a board could need you to start pretty quickly. And if you're in some you know, big operating role, it might be difficult for you to do that. So asking you know, how long could they wait? When are the next board meetings? Because that's often a trigger. If there's a next board meeting three months out, their hope would be you join that board meeting. Or it could be you know, the next board meeting that's two from now, so six months away, but understanding the timing piece. The other thing I'd say, which I think is really critical, is trying to get in underneath the tent to understand what's going on with the company and therefore what might happen in the boardroom. There's many things, by the way, you can anticipate, but 
if a company, for example, is going through a CEO search, let's just say that were happening. Now, it's pretty rare that a CEO search and a board search would happen in parallel. But if there's a CEO search going on, you want the dust to settle to figure out who's the next chief executive going to be before you were to choose that. You want to look very carefully at who the other board members are. Again, I'd say, do you respect them? Do you think you could learn from them? Are they all first-time board members or do you have people around that table who really will be able to sort of teach you and mentor you as to how to be a great board member? This is fantastic information. I cannot thank you enough for taking your time to open our eyes to what it really means to serve on a board, to be interested, what they're looking for. And also, I want to thank you for all of the years that you have put in to recruiting women, to making your mission to have more diversity in companies that you work with. You are a true leader in this field and, you know, opened the door for companies like The Second Shift to exist. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. For more, you can follow along at thesecondshift.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and help us make work work for you and for all women.